Daniel Zeitner is a true East Anglian MP. Before his 2015 election to represent the City of Cambridge in Parliament, he was a South Norfolk district councillor for the Long Row Ward, which has since been lost to the mists of time, better known as the Local Government Boundary Commission. Alongside his duties as the Cambridge MP, Daniel is also Shadow Minister for Farming and Fisheries and led the opposition response to the Genetic Technology Precision Breeding Bill in its committee stages. This can only be great news for our region, which is leading the way on agritech, plant science and gene-based technologies. Not only that, Daniel is also the co-chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for the East of England, who I'll be featuring on this very podcast later in the year. I met Daniel at the offices of Ideaspace City, who very kindly lent us their wonderful boardroom by the River Cam in the heart of Daniel's constituency. It must be Ideaspace, because it is a glorious, glorious day, just like the last time Eastern Promise came here. But I am absolutely honoured to be here with Daniel Zeichner, MP for Cambridge. Mr Zeichner, welcome to Eastern Promise. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Delight to be with you, Mike. Could I just ask you to just give us a sort of the potted history of Daniel Zeichner, if I may? Well, I mean, my, my great joy is representing this wonderful city. And we sit here and look out over the, the glorious River Cam. It's wonderful. It took me a long time to uh, win the privilege of representing this city. Uh, I fought three general elections in mid-Norfolk, came very close in 1997. Um, and then chose probably the worst time to stand for Cambridge, which was 2010, when I came third. Um, and it took Nick Clegg, for whom I'm eternally grateful, and the problems the Liberal Democrats had in coalition, to just get me over the line in 2015. And since then, seven and a half years on, uh, I'm now Shadow Environment Minister, Shadow Food Minister, Food and Farming, so very, and fishing, great for the East of England. Um, and. Throughout my time in Parliament, I've been conscious of the wider responsibility beyond Cambridge because I think there is such a thing as the East of England. And uh, my ultimate ambition in one day may be to be the new regional minister for the East of England. So that's a very short kind of account <laughs> that's of, very good. Of, of where I come from and where I want to be. I mean, you, you, Barbara Follett, I think, we, um, as, as, as some, some listeners may know, uh, is the previous, was the previous uh, minister for the East of England under the, the, the last... Labour government. Um, it's interesting, and you talk about, uh, you know, you're thinking such a thing as an East of England, and so do I. And the conversations I was having with, I had with Cambridge Ahead yesterday were very much based around, um, th this isn't Yorkshire. There's no overarching um, identity that people like Leeds and Sheffield and, and Bradford, that, that they are Yorkshire people. Um, but what there is, is some collections of very individual places, unique places, Norwich, Cambridge, uh, Ipswich, Colchester, and the rural hinterland around them. Do you think that's, uh, is that a way to, a positive way to look at the East of England, kind of a collective, um, a cooperative, if you like? Yeah, because these, particularly the historic cities, there's something very precious about them. They've got similar kind of pressures in lots of case, cases, transport being, an obvious one, housing costs and so on. But they're also fantastic generators, not just of, of, of economic success, but they're wonderful places to visit. Um, and they do have international reputations, Cambridge obviously in particular, but the world knows about Norwich too. And 
I think the East, there is something special about the East. And when I helped with Peter Alders set up the all-party group in Parliament, we kind of said, we're not going to get involved in the boundaries issue. If you think you're part of the East of England, that's good enough for us. Michael Heseltine, who launched it for us, wasn't convinced. He, he kind of said, you, well, I think you're wasting your time, which was not perhaps the most uplifting message uh, to start <laughs> really with. Know. Um, but I am struck by, that was three or four years ago now, um, because there was, a, I believe, the government made a big mistake in getting rid of all the regional structures. There's a gap between Whitehall and wherever you are, frankly. So the clamour from businesses in particular and local government in the East to have some forum where people came together was really strong. Now, a group of, of MPs in Parliament can't provide that structure, but at least we provided a space for people to come together. And now we're finding they are very well attended, well supported, and I think we've got the basis of a, a good discussion amongst those kind of people. But for, but for people who live in the East, they know they live in the East. They watch Look East, for goodness yes, sake. Yes, indeed, they do. Um, I've always quibbled with the BBC a bit about whether Northampton's part of the East. And um, <laughs> I've always thought at the weekend, I don't want to hear about another murder in Northampton, thank you. Um, <laughs> but one, one can debate that endlessly. But, but for people in the East, if we do not come together, then there are plenty of other places. The North has got its act together. Um, the Southwest actually has got its act together. The Southeast possibly doesn't need to in quite the same way. London is hugely powerful. And if we don't do it, we're missing out. So I don't have the exact blueprint, but what I do know is that there is something there that, that we need to do and it's worthwhile. I, I, I couldn't agree more. That is, after all, why I'm, why, why I'm doing this and, engage, and engaging you know, people like yourself in these, in these conversations. And um, so yesterday, the conversation I, uh, again, I had with Cambridge Ahead was my view, I sort of put to them my view, which I'll now ask you to, you know, the, the, the secret is to let Cambridge be Cambridge. Don't try and pretend yeah. that Cambridge is something other than what it is, then it has a history other than the one it has. And the same for Norwich and the same for, for the other Ipswich and Colchester to a lesser degree. But I think it, you have to you understand that dynamic and not expect Cambridge in where it's located in the country you know it, it has a 360 view whereas Norwich and Ipswich I'm being very city centric here but they they naturally because they are so close to the coast look inwards what's your reflections on the the, the people I've just put out there on on that sort of 360 view for Cambridge and letting Cambridge be what it is and and, and it, looking for that, that what, those connections absolutely and what's more is i mean what i've learned as the mps everyone wants a bit of cambridge quite frankly if there's any kind of discussion particularly around developing the economy people want a bit of cambridge so uh, there's lots of talk about uh, what's called the innovation corridor which goes from north london up through stansted mm. to cambridge inevitably and there's a real synergy there particularly through the life sciences sector and improving the transport links and i have to say cambridge's links to london both ways and london to cambridge are really important but equally of course there's lots of talk of the golden triangle and the links across to oxford now i've always taken the view that People in Cambridge and Oxford are less interested in each other, both more interested in London and the wider world. But there is, there is something there. And when you look at the high-tech uh, success stories across the world that Cambridge is competing with, they tend to have that arc hinterland approach so that they can spread 
some of the pressures because the pressure on Cambridge is intense. And there are plenty of people who live in Cambridge who, who think it's big enough already. Yeah. Um, and trying to get that balance, and that's for me has been the, the key to this discussion, to keep Cambridge special because that's what makes it so attractive, but also to allow it to grow because, frankly, my view has always been if we don't keep going forwards, I'm afraid you don't stay where you are, you go backwards. Indeed. So, and not everyone agrees with that, and I get that, but that, that's my view on it. And certainly, I think it's the view of most of the business people I speak to, and understandably, they probably would take that view, but I want Cambridge in 30, 40, 50 years to be just as successful um, as it has been. I think there were some far-sighted decisions taken 20, 30 years ago. Um, the Science Park, of course, was hugely innovative at its yeah. time, won the first. The biomedical campus, again, was far-sighted. We, this generation needs to look ahead and have a view for Cambridge ahead. And people like David Cleveley, who I've, yeah. I've been close to for many years, I think, he's often talked about making Cambridge the best small city in the world. Yes. Well, I would love to do that, but I tell you, unless we sort out our transport and housing problems and deal with the inequality in the city, we're not going to be able to have that moniker, and that's what I want to see. We, when we did uh, the infamous train event, uh, we, the first panel I held was on transport, and we had with us around the, the, the table uh, Jonathan Denby of Greater Anglia. We had uh, Andrew Holdsworth, who's an Assistant Director of Development at Breckland Council, which, for those not in the know, is, is sort of uh, the, the mid-Norfolk area uh, from Thetford across to Deerham and Swaffham. And they own most of the stations, or they, the, most of the stations, I should say, are in their patch. And we talked about um, how hard it was to get the service to hourly and how Greater Anglia kind of uh, led that campaign. But we also talked about what the benefits and the possibilities that would flow from unlocking a half-hour service. And when, you've got, when you throw in the biomedical campus access at Cambridge South, I think for people looking along that, that sweep up to Thetford, which is kind of equidistant mm. between Norwich and Cambridge, and which is really coming along despite its troubled past, it's a beautiful, beautiful place, there, there, there becomes all sorts of opportunities unlocked um, that keeps Cambridge special, but allows that, that growth, that opportunity to spread along that, that corridor. I mean, Absolutely. And... I mean, historically, we know that good transport routes have an impact. Now, I mean, geographers and economists will argue about how these things work. And it is sometimes difficult to spread success. I got in a lot of trouble some years ago by making a, a slightly crass joke about Camborne. At the time, I said it was a, it was a merger of Cameron and Osborne and everyone wanted to get out, <laughs> um, which went down well at a Labour Party conference, but didn't impress the people in Camborne very much. So I went to see them. Um, and, of course, the problem was... They got a settlement which had been built without proper transport links. So here we are, 20 years on, having to put those links in. And basically, done in the right way, I think exactly as you say, there's huge opportunities, whether you're looking across to Milton Keynes and to Oxford, or whether you're looking into Norfolk and into Suffolk. We've got a region which has got massive potential. And my sense is at the moment, we're not making as much of it as we could. So. We frequently had this debate in Parliament um, that particularly the, the greater Cambridge area is one of the few parts of the country that actually makes a, a net contribution to the Exchequer. Without being um, difficult about it, we would quite like to be able to reinvest some of those resources yeah. in making sure not only can we preserve the quality of life that our residents deserve, but actually build the future, because I think the future is in this part of the country.
Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and for me, it's about taking the, the, the individual threads of cooperation you already have between the universities, uh, Cambridge um, University, University of East Anglia, Norwich University of the Arts, University of Essex, and kind of threading them into a much stronger rope yeah. that, 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 and a much stronger narrative. But I just change tack slightly rather than I seem to be encouraging each other to agree on things. Um, could you tell me about a year in the life of the East of England All-Party Group? Yeah, I mean, I think we, um, we have a secretariat that helps us and we work very closely with the um, East of England Local Government Association. So basically, our model at the moment is to lobby for resources for the East of England. And that involves basically inviting ministers along to hear from us. They don't always um, come with quite the alacrity we would like, but we've had good support from people like George Freeman. Of course, um, yeah. we're, try we're hoping to get Lucy Fraser, who's the new House Housing and Planning Minister, and obviously has an interest um, locally yep. along. And what we try and do is make a evidence-based, coherent argument for why the East should have some of the resources it deserves. And of course, we're helped hugely by the research work that is done by some of the organisations like Cambridge Ahead. Because one of the things that does gall us, and actually I remember having a, a series of debates in Westminster alongside um, Heidi Allen, um, when she was the, the Conservative MP for South Cambridgeshire, um, making the point that the, the current um, population projections the government were using were woefully inadequate and massively underestimated the pace of change. And so we keep making that point, and it's important because what it means is at the moment, particularly things like the health service, we are under-resourced for yeah. the population need before you come to transport issues, which would unlock further economic growth. So there's an important, I think we play an important role sure. in trying to in inform ministers um, who, of course, clearly have the same kind of points being made to them by other regions. But if there isn't a voice, then who makes the argument? And I think the East has, has suffered in the past from individual areas making their representations, but having a collective view on how it might work and go forward seems to me to be a more powerful way of doing it. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And um, there's, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the smart emerging, I always say I get confused between enabling and emerging, but it is emerging, the Smart Emerging Technologies Institute, um, which I was, it's being sort of led by uh, Professor Gerard Parr at the UEA, but it involves Cambridge and it involves Essex. And uh, that's a very, uh, very innovative scheme to create a data, the largest data testbed, if, if not the world, then certainly in Europe, uh, that companies will be able to come along to that line between, to, between Cambridge and Norwich and jack in to this massive pipe yeah. of data that's flowing and use it for modeling, use it for testing purposes. And I was encouraging uh, Professor Parr to get in touch and say, what a perfect forum to go yeah. along and, and geo support from MPs, go and talk to the Secretariat and, and see if you can get added to the, the list. Well, we, it's a fantastic we, project. We, we love to hear about these projects and what's interesting, I think I, think I have um, had conversations with them before um, in an individual capacity, but yes, we, I mean, we want to showcase the, the, the good things that are happening in the East. But our, our focus is perhaps a touch narrow at the moment on that, particularly focusing on spending reviews and so on. Of course on the basis that that is the point where we might have most effect. But we're under no illusion. We're not, we're not a substitute for a development agency or <laughs> properly funded regional structure. We are a, a place where the MPs can provide a, a forum and an opportunity for people to come together. But it's, um, it is that. Personally, I would like to see proper regional structures. Yeah. I was 
I was closely involved over many years through the last Labour government when we did have um, a regional assembly and so on, and I thought it did a good job. I know not everyone loved EDA, but I felt that it was a, a better way of doing it than what we've subsequently had, which is essentially counties kind of competing against each other. And actually, even worse than that, I would say that the, the fall off in the capacity of local authorities to do economic development has led to a real gap. And so although the local enterprise partnerships are supposed to do it, um, it's pretty out of sight. And there's a real, I would say, democratic accountability gap. And of course, in Cambridgeshire, we have a particularly um, obscure model of local governance mm -hmm. now with <laughs> not only a combined authority and a mayor, but also the Greater Cambridge Partnership. And that, that does irk a lot of local people who ask quite rightly the question, how do we have any purchase over this? So we've got a mess in local government terms. And I think it could be much improved. I mean, you, you've talked uh, in, in several debates about uh, you've called for a proper regional policy. So is that what it would look like? A kind of, I don't want to say return to or even, but sort of uh, bringing back something like EDA? Well, um, for my party, uh, Keir Starmer asked Gordon Brown to look at not only the state of the union, which obviously is pretty well placed to do, but also look at the, uh, the regional issues in England. So I've been involved in some of those discussions and I don't think we've yet come to a finished conclusion. There's a tension, I think, because Labour doesn't want to be seen to be creating more tiers of governance. Um, I think, as someone pointed out, we've got five already in some parts mm -hmm, of Cambridgeshire. Yes. Um, so a rationalisation, but local government reform is notoriously difficult and complicated. So as we get closer to an election, I'll expect to see some plans outlined by my colleagues. But I think the one thing we can probably most of us agree on is that the current setup doesn't feel like it works for many people. Mm. And I certainly the message I get constantly from business leaders is who do we talk to? Who's in charge? Um, and that is a problem. It's a real problem for Cambridge. I mean, when there was the, the famous battle um, over um, AstraZeneca relocating and fi the Pfizer bid a decade ago, the question was asked, who speaks for Cambridge? The great irony was, it turned out it was David Sainsbury. Totally yes. unelected, but because of his position as, um, as Chancellor of the University of Cambridge and also a former science minister, he had a kind of moral authority. But he didn't... And that's crazy. A city like Cambridge, which is you know, renowned around the world, and our city council has you know, very limited powers as a second-tier authority. And we can't... We've got brilliant potential leaders, but... They just don't have the levers. So I, I would like to see quite dramatic change, but it's difficult to do. Well, it certainly is. I mean, I think there's, there's an extent to which, certainly if we're looking around climate policy, there's an extent to which uh, a lot of the leadership now is, is coming from the private and the third sector. Um, yeah, and that, that's partly because, I mean, our, our democratic structures have been hobbled, I would say. And it's, it's not a party political point. This goes back a long, long time. Local government essentially has been, I would say, systematically undermined over 20, 30, 40 years. You look back to the Victorian, but you know, you look back to Chamberlain in Birmingham. You look forward back to Arthur South in Norwich. Mm. You know, these were big figures. Patricia Hollis, I remember, in Norwich. You know, yes. I mean, she was able to do big things because then local authorities still have power. And that's partly about resources. Now, you know, one can argue 
national governments became nervous about the actions of some councils. But we've gone far too far the other way, in my view. Mm. And my sense is most local government leaders, whatever party they're from, understand the need to be responsible. But they, they're fretting at their inability to be able to really provide the leadership that local areas lead, need. And that's what comes to me from business. Yeah. yeah that they want to know who to talk to in Cambridge. And when I explain the system, I can see them looking glazed already. Um, <laughs> and they say, well, can we talk to you? And I say, well, you can talk to me, but I've got no authority whatsoever other than soft power to actually go and talk yeah. to other people. I haven't got the authority to order a postage stamp. Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I do recall that you can you, you, you see if you talk to some officials in local government, they thought of talking to an MP, the blood runs cold slightly because they know that the edict then comes down from on high. Why is this MP writing to us about X, Y, Z? And they all have to <laughs> run around and, and, and justify. Um, uh, I just br very briefly want to come on to the Nice new era for a Cambridge economy. Yes. Um, I mean, the, the work that Cambridge Ahead and others have done, um, and Matthew Bullock, uh, who's a, a really significant advisor in terms of understanding the stats of what's happening in the region, um, I think has been really, really helpful. And again, David Cleaver is often involved in these things. Um, and I think it's, these are really, really important pieces of work. I mean, starting earlier from the, uh, the, the, the review of economic, the independent review on the Cambridge and Peterborough economy. And, and it's the kind of work that once would have been done by local authorities. And that's what worries me slightly, that the, I'm eternally grateful to people for the work they're doing. But it kind of then runs into a problem in that it, it, it's unclear who can actually turn it into reality. So you've got all these brilliant people in Cambridge and, and other places producing suggestions, and then they go into the Whitehall machine. And particularly with the dreadful turnover of ministers, I mean, le leaving aside what one feels about the ministers, I, I'm strongly of the view, and I speak as a shadow minister, that it takes time mm. to, to get any sense of the brief um, and I've lost track of the number of housing ministers we've had now. Oh, no. I mean, we must be up to 14, 15 yeah. in the last decade. If, if ministers are only in place, well, at the moment, six months would be good um, for that time, then it, what it means is that there's, there's no possibility of any serious long-term thinking. So, I mean, one of my great hopes will be at some point we get... Um, I mean, I want a settled Labour government, but actually settle for a settled government... Yes, of any kind. ...that could actually think through some of these things in a more coherent way because otherwise we just basically stumble from initiative to initiative and just come from seeing um, some of the schools and colleges in this constant bid culture they're bidding against each other yeah uh, this is no way to run and plan for the future one of the most important parts of our economy and cambridge is it really is and it will be for the future well it's it's predicted say Savills, that by 2030, the productivity of Cambridge will have outstripped London by 6%, which to me is an amazing piece of... Well, I'm not surprised because, of course, we've no, we, we, we got, we got, we got London housing prices, but Cambridge wages, and the productivity probably will look pretty good, providing we can keep the people. And this is a, something which I think people haven't yet fully kind of cottoned onto. There's this kind of assumption that Cambridge is always successful because it has been successful. The reason it's successful is because brilliant people want to come here. Mm. And they're not going to come here indefinitely if we can't sort out our housing, our transport, 
and our schools because the money isn't the lure it's it's the great science and the quality of life yeah but our quality of life is i mean i feel passionately about this we've got to sort some of this stuff out which is why the big debate going on around how we improve the local transport system lots of people are just concentrating on charging for road space i'm concentrating on having a brilliant transport system yeah. because without that frankly in a few years time if we're not able to attract people here then cambridge will gradually like the rest of the uk sink internationally yeah. and that is not a good place for us to be in the future Um, I have to say that I really, I mean, I came here today largely public, via public transport. I got the, the train from, uh, it goes from Norwich to Stansted, but I obviously got off in Cambridge. And it's beautiful new trains, really good new trains. Yep. Then I got the, the U-bus yep. from Cambridge, stop, stop 8 outside Cambridge yep. and all the way to the Fitzwilliam. Um, and I think that's, that, that, that needs to be sort of, again, just to go back to what we said before about the, the, the half-hourly, if we can get that, I think that will be a huge fillip um, for the region. But I just talk about your agriculture brief a bit. You're speaking at the Norfolk Farming Conference. I am. And next, next Wednesday, week. absolutely delighted. Um, slightly tongue-in-cheek, I'm particularly delighted because um, it was supposed to be a government minister and the government declined to send anybody. Um, and so they asked me as the shadow minister, which I'm thrilled about. Um, but I'm also thrilled because I'm going around the country the moment I spoke to northern farmers in Hexham the other week. And basically I said, look, I don't expect you to know anything about me. I'm just, you know, a vague, obscure name you may or may not have heard of in Parliament. But if I want to be your minister, then I want to introduce myself to you properly and, and be completely upfront with you. I, I will be there to represent the sector. I won't always agree with you, but what I do offer is a genuine dialogue. And that went down very well, actually, not least because I think there were a lot of people there who actually felt Labour had kind of rather walked away from the countryside over the last decade. Now, my background was in Norfolk as, as a councillor. Um, although I represent what, you know, the most brilliant urban centre imaginable, I actually think that link between town and country is so central to mm -hmm. England and the East. Um, and I, I love the brief. It's not just about um, primary producers, farmers and fishers. It's about the whole food production system. And I've never yet gone to a conference where people are interested in food. They almost always want their lunch. <laughs> um, and you know, it's a serious point because, you know, we, and our food system is both brilliant, but also, I'm afraid, it's not doing wonders for our health at the moment. For some of us, we've got an obesity crisis, and it's also not doing wonders for the environment. So we've got massive challenge to move it from where it is keeping it affordable and fantastic, but making it environmentally more friendly and more healthy. So what, what bigger challenge could there be in politics? So that's what I want to talk to them about. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I know they're really looking, looking forward to it. And um, Belinda Clark, yeah. Dr. Belinda Clark of Agritech E is in the chair. Who... She is, and, and I think um, John Alston, um, who I remember from many years ago. I think oh, I'm yeah. Right. yeah. Um, for me, it's a slight blast from the past because I, yeah. um, I remember attending events. I, I used to work for the last directly elected member of the European Parliament for Norfolk, Clive Needle. And we met a, a lot of farmers, land managers, food producers through what were five very happy years for me. So to some extent, I'm renewing old acquaintances. I never imagined I'd be back in this capacity, but it's, um, I'm really looking forward to it. Do you know Clark, Clark Willis? I don't. I'm sure you'll meet him right. next week and, and I... Oh, uh, well, well, maybe I do from a Zoom call. I'm just saying, uh, 
Tell me more. Who he's he's he he was um, uh, the uh, CEO of Anglia Farmers, the farming cooperative, until ooh, I can't remember when exactly. But now uh, he's he's kind of one of the leading lights behind the Food Enterprise Park. Yes, in which case we did an event together a few months ago, and I think he, he's on my extraordinarily long list of people. The strange thing has been in the last few months, um, it used to be I had a list of people I wanted to see, now it's turned around, there's a whole list of people who want to see me. Now, I couldn't <laughs> yes. possibly comment on why that might be, but um, I just wish there were more hours in a day, yeah. because it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. I, mean, I took on the fishing brief as well this time last year, which is a whole different world, but fascinating, hugely interesting. So I'm also on a tour of the fishing ports. I started in Kings Lynn. Um, we'd, oh, um, wow, yeah. at, the, uh, uh, at um, uh, one of the shell fisheries, and that was a really interesting experience. I'd visited them before many years ago when I worked for Clive Needles, so it was a kind of, again, renewing old acquaintances. But the, the, that's a tough industry, yeah. and really hard, and the wash fisheries had a hard time recently. Um, but again, uh, it was fascinating, because for me, I suspect it was the first time many of those people had seen a Labour politician for a long time. And although there was an initial suspicion, I hope people left at least with the were left with at least with the impression that I was open to dialogue and willing mm. to listen. Well, what's interesting about Clark is, and I know Belinda's the same, but Clark is, and I've interviewed him, uh, an ag, what I term an agrifuturist. He is a, he he has he's one of these people who who is nominally retired but is never likely to retire. Yeah. And, but he has a very clear-eyed view of the future of agriculture and the future of food and where it's going. And that's what I found interesting in his contribution. I think it was a conference that I was chairing a session of. And yeah, and I thought, yeah, this is some, I mean, quite an interesting view of the changes that are going to happen and how quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and if that's the case, then we need to work with them. All I'd say is that there's a, as far as I can see, there is a huge farming community out there that doesn't have much of a voice. Yeah. yeah I, talk, I find, I'm, I'm beginning to notice this going around. All the places I go to are the places all the politicians are always taken to. Well, that's and, yes, of course. And they're very engaged and they're very good. But my experience as being a, a very rural councillor in Norfolk 20 years ago is that there are many farmers who are keeping their heads down and just hoping some of the changes go away. And actually, we, we go and see some farmers um, in and around Cambridge for whom that's absolutely the case. Yeah. And I worry about them because particularly with agricultural support being withdrawn, these look like hard times. Yeah. Um, I, feel, I feel like I'm about to sort of commit that, the sin of, sort of also mentioning um, uh, condimentum yeah. on the Food Enterprise Park, yeah. which, which I, get, which I yeah. know that um, the former Prime Minister um, visited. Yes. And uh, they're doing incredible things like looking how they can deactivate the, the, the enzyme that makes mustard hot to use yep. it as an, a, a gluten-free flour. Yes, this has been explained to me as well. So, ah, so um, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the, to the converted already, or not, not, not even converted, the choir. Um, but what I, I found interesting about that is Dave Martin, who uh, runs, who's the CEO of Condimentum, brought in by the mustard grower and the mint growers, and he's a scouser. Yeah. Um, I interviewed him before we did, we had met before I interviewed him, and he said, "Oh, but I'll get my CFO to do the interview when you come because he has a Norfolk accent." And I said, "No, no, 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 no! no. I want you because you show that this region can pull in top tier talent. You'd work for Quaker, you'd work for PepsiCo. You know, he knew milling. He yeah. had a lot to learn about mustard milling, but he knew milling. 
Um, and I said, and that shows really why we should be hu hugely optimistic about the future of agriculture in, in, yeah. in the east of England, because people like you are coming to coming to, to, to make it your home and get involved and think that this is great. I love yeah. it. Well, there's so much we can do. But again, my sense of the farming sector is that people operate within the structure that is set out. There's a politician's job to work out what that structure is. People will do what they're asked to do. Yeah. Um, but we've got to have a bit more clarity about where the future lies. And I think at the moment, I don't think it's unfair to say that there's a, a certain amount of muddle. And uh, I interrogate the, the current farmer minister on a regular basis. Uh, Theresa Coffey and I had our first uh, uh, dialogue across the dispatch box um, last week. I think she was a bit tired having come back from COP27. Yeah. I, I'm sure it'll go better next time. <laughs> <laughs> I have no comment to make. How are you for time? How much? We can probably do another five, ten minutes, I think. Oh, right. Well, in, in that case... Um, I'm enjoying myself. This is a trouble. I, I know. It, I, I used to sort of uh, be, be the person to... to yeah. Yes. Yeah, but and, the, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and um, I try and, it's been absolutely delight to talk to you, and I try and end on a bit of a, 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 left, a left field question, which I, and I'm going to ask you the same one I asked George Freeman when I interviewed him a year ago now. He was the first interview I, I put out there. Parliament is not, should we say, the most, well, well, they do their best, but it's, it's a bit of a rickety building, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> and the chances of lifts getting stuck is not outside the realm of possibility. So. Which MP, any party, um, George, went, George, when I asked him, went way back into the midst of history, uh, would you like to be stuck in a lift with? Well, it sounds absolutely awful, but George and I get on very well. Um, and in, in his, I mean, he, I think he might be the MP who's now either resigned or been sacked most from government in all time, as well as I can make out. <laughs> so I would very happily be stuck in a lift with George. Um, to my horror the other day, I discovered that... Um, this, I'm in one Parliament Street uh, with, the mo with some of the most rickety lifts. Um, and clearly the punishment beating for former senior ministers is to be sent to one Parliament Street. And there was a period of time when a certain Boris Johnson was, <laughs> was exiled to the second floor. And um, I do remember the, the much-missed and dearly lamented loss of David Amos. David and I, again, yeah. got on pretty well. And he and I used to stand in the lift with Johnson looking at each other, wondering what on earth we might say. And I mean, I thought it was reasonable that I had nothing to say to Boris, but David clearly didn't have much to say to him either. <laughs> and then uh, to my absolute horror yesterday, I found myself in the lift with Jacob Rees-Mogg and that, would have, that, was, that will be a challenge. I, he's of course notoriously very polite, Yes. but I have to say this is probably not a common ground. So we will, we will see how this goes. Um, so I'm, I'm very much talking about, obviously, uh, politicians on uh, the other side of the political spectrum. But um, any of my colleagues from the Parliamentary Labour Party would be fine. And I have to say, Chion Wuro, who's the Shadow Science Minister, and who's just down the corridor from me, um, I don't think we have been stuck in the lift, but we are frequently in the lift together. And Chi and I, I'm sure we have an excellent discussion about um, uh, R&D tax credits or something exciting like that. Well, I think, you know, Chionra and yourself, uh, Norfolk and the east of England would be, you know, great stomping ground in terms of all the advances in, in agriculture and food. Well, as she, as she cheerfully says, you don't often come across, I mean, most, in most political dialogues, a black Geordie engineer woman. 
and she she, she offers she occupies a niche place in British politics. <laughs> I'd say she's also huge fun, and I think she'll be a brilliant science minister. And although, as I say, um, I have a lot of time for George. Uh, he was quite aggressive in a debate the other day, I have to say. He, uh, he's, he, can, he can get his dander up. He, yeah, he absolutely. absolutely. But, but to be fair, he was defending um, his side against some, a fairly aggressive charge from my side. So that's what happens in the chamber. But um, I was very pleased when he was restored as science minister. There appears yeah. to be still a little bit of um, misunderstanding with Nusrat Ghani as to who is the science minister, yes. because um, extraordinarily the government appeared to appoint two. But... That's for them to sort out. That's for them to sort out. Well, Daniel Zeichner, it has been a pleasure to sit here and, and, and talk to you about the, the, the strength and the, the opportunity in the East of England. I wish you every success. Thank you. I've in, enjoyed in it. In your shadow brief that, uh, and, and w whatever happens, whether it becomes your uh, ministerial brief, we shall see. That's for the electorate to decide. But thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much to Daniel for coming on the podcast. It was a true pleasure to talk to him and underscores that passion for the East of England and the desire to see our region succeed is truly a cross-party affair. I also need to thank Ideaspace for hosting us. We couldn't have been made more welcome. And I hope this will prompt you to go back into the Eastern Promise archive and check out my visit to Ideaspace City and Ideaspace West.